This morning our text is going to be from John chapter 5, so if you will begin turning there, please. John chapter 5, we're going to start with verse 1 and go through verse 18. So we're going to be reading again a portion of what we looked at last week, and then kind of seeing that story come to a conclusion as Jesus interacts with this crippled man and then the Jewish leaders. So before we do that, let's go to the uh, Lord and ask for his help. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would uh, help us to cast off anything that would weigh us down, the truth or the so-called truth of this world, and exchange it for the real truth of the gospel, that you would help us to see um, this world in the light of truth, in the light of the gospel, that you would help us to see our sin in the light of the truth as well, Lord, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would guide us to your truth through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as I've mentioned many times, I am a board game nerd, and I like lots of different kinds of board games and games in general. And I've actually studied game theory from a mathematical perspective, and I've studied it from a game design perspective. And so, and like most avid board gamers, I have lots of designs going on in my head for my own board games, and I've actually been doing this since I was a little kid. And I would usually take whatever I was interested in at the time, and I would make a game out of it. And so the thing that I was most interested in in middle school was professional wrestling. Funny enough. And so I made this wrestling game when I was in sixth grade, or seventh grade, I think. And it actually had little action figures. I was bored in class pretty much all the time. And so I cut out these action figures and used lots of tape and the teacher's tape, of course, and I made like a little ring, and I made these little action figures and lots of move cards and dice and everything out of tape and note and paper that I probably should have been using to make notes instead. So this game had it all except for written instructions, because anytime I played the game, the rules would somehow morph so that I never lost. I could get the glory every single time I played the game. I was the best at my own game because my game kind of conformed to the way that I was playing it. We played on our desks in class. We'd actually turn our desks together, and every time, no matter what, no matter who I picked to wrestle with, I could win. And it eventually got around. That's how I played, and so that game slowly went away. And I actually don't really know what happened to any of those games that I made. I made lots of games as a kid. But I'm also, but I'm still very familiar with my desire to change the rules so that I can somehow come out looking the best. We're probably all familiar with that to some degree. The story in Scripture here is something very much about that. And so we're going to pick up with the second story from last week, the one concerning the crippled man beside the pool. And we're going to read about his healing again, but I specifically want to focus on what happens after the healing. And this man's interactions with the Jewish leaders here in the text and their expectations concerning the law. And so we're going to do this considering two points. First, the leaders focus on the law rather than the healing. 
and then Jesus' focus on redemption rather than condemnation. So with that, let's stand together as we look at God's Word. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. John chapter 5, excuse me, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just a quick recap of the man by the pool. Last week we talked about this man who was healed. Despite his lack of faith, Jesus said, do you want to be healed? And he was more concerned about what was going on in the pool rather than Jesus standing there right beside him. And even after his healing, we really don't see a change of heart in this man. He eventually rats out Jesus concerning his healing him on the Sabbath, and even as Jesus instructs him to go away and sin no more. So then there's this next issue of the Sabbath, and it's it's important to establish a stance here so that we can go forward with a biblical view of the Sabbath under our belts before we go forward in this passage. Some would try to make keeping the Sabbath kind of a non-binding portion of the Ten Commandments because somehow Jesus fulfilled that one in a way that he did not fulfill the other nine. And so I don't want to misrepresent the argument so I don't want to go too much further on that. But we're just, we'll just say that we'll stand where, with our confession, which, of course, I, I believe to be aligned with Scripture on our Sabbath views. And I'm going to read from that this morning. 
this is our this is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's chapter twenty one, section eight, and I'll just read from this. This is our views concerning the Sabbath. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after due preparation of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a do not only observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. And so that establishes kind of our doctrine of the Sabbath and what we should and should not be doing on the Sabbath. And I want to point out particularly where it says duties of necessity and mercy, because that's going to be an important part for us to look at when we're looking at what the Lord Jesus did here. And let's turn together to Isaiah chapter 58 as well. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. And this gives us a view of how the Lord sees the Sabbath in regards to our worship of him. Starting at verse 13, it says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. And I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so the Lord, you can see from this passage in Isaiah, sees the Sabbath observance as a very important part of our lives, as a very important part of our worship to him. And so Jesus here in this passage is not breaking the Sabbath, nor is he asking this man to break the Sabbath and carrying his mat. The leaders here needed to consider the spirit of the law rather than the letter. And the fact that the letter of the law, being the words of God found in Scripture, don't say anything about carrying your mat. They need to look at this rather than, they need to look at grace rather than judgment. Able to walk after 38 years, finally carrying his mat home. For the last time, that's a big deal. Jesus, the healer, fulfilling his role to heal the blind, the sick, and the lame, to find those who were lost. These acts are not Sabbath-breaking acts, because they are about the business of our Savior and our Redeemer. And so we need to be careful when we're looking here at this passage concerning that. And so now that we've established kind of the view of the Sabbath and what Jesus was doing here, let's look then at the first point that the leaders focus on the law rather than redemption. And again, there at the end of verse 9, the the passage makes sure that we understand now this day is the Sabbath. Sabbath in Jewish culture is very strictly observed. Every letter of the law considered in the practice. And some things were even added to the law in order to make their observance particularly looking more holy. And this oral tradition that the Jewish leaders came about, was it's called the Mishnah, or part of it was called the Mishnah, 
and it was developed in order to spell out the things that could be done and could not be done on the Sabbath. It was kind of a tradition that was kept orally from, from times past, but aren't really things contained in the scriptures. And so this idea of not being able to carry your mat, as these Jewish leaders say to the man, isn't something that we'll find in scripture, but it's something that they would have found in their, their oral codes. And so their motive was probably a good one. In order to keep the Sabbath, let's have these constructs to help us do that. So it's not a bad motive. But when people are oppressed, the motive is usually inconsequential. When people are being held down by the law of the Sabbath, which is not meant to hold us down at all, but to bring us up, Jesus, being the Redeemer and the physical embodiment of the fulfillment of the law, came to fix that, came to fix this idea of being held down, being oppressed by the law. And what do they say? They say, it is unlawful for you to take up your bed. So just consider this for a minute. Consider what's going on here. Here's this man. He's been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know if he's 38 years old and is now finally walking for the first time or if he's an old man and used to walk and became an invalid and now he's finally walking again. We don't really know. But we do know that for 38 years he's been down by this pool and he's been getting stepped over constantly. Do you think the leaders probably recognized him? Probably. Maybe. So now this man is walking, not laying on his bed, but he's walking. And instead of rejoicing, who shows up? The Sabbath police show up. They take no notice of him being healed. They ask no questions about what he's doing, but they immediately note that he's apparently breaking some oral tradition concerning the Sabbath. We read from our confession, or from our catechism this morning concerning the Sabbath, that there's two reasons that the Sabbath was made. The first one it listed in Exodus 20, we read from our confession this morning that it's made as a day of rest. That six days we shall labor, on the seventh we shall rest. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where you have the second giving of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath law is, is listed as we should keep it in order to remember what he has done for us, that he delivered the people of God from Egypt. And it's, it's to remember the redemption that he has given to us, to rest from our labors, to remember our deliverance. And so for the Jews, this was no different. And so how was this man breaking the law by carrying his mat? He wasn't. He was simply doing what the Lord of the universe instructed him to do. And he says this, The man who healed me, that man told me to take up my mat and walk. And so what do the Sabbath police immediately want to know? Well, who is this man? Who is he that told you you could do this? Because obviously it's wrong. Not, how did he heal you? Or not an exclam exclamation of, of joy or of glory of, what's, of what just went on. They just wanted to figure out who this vile perpetrator of the law was and bring justice to him. So, now that I've made the Jewish leaders these awful people, let's consider our own tendencies here to be the Sabbath police.
for you, it probably isn't the Sabbath police, though I do know some people who, who fancy themselves as Sabbath police, but it might be something else for you. I lived in uh, Panama City Beach for a summer, and I attended a church there that would probably be labeled very conservative, um, very conservative, which isn't a bad thing, I'm not painting that to be a bad thing at all. So one Sunday, several couples walked in and they were only wearing their swimwear, which wasn't uncommon to see people in public places only wearing swimwear in Panama City Beach in the summer. Just I worked at a grocery store that summer. People came in and nothing, just basically nothing to buy milk and eggs and whatever else. All right. And these people weren't drunk or crazy. They were just they literally came in as they were because they were invited by a friend of mine, actually, to come to church that Sunday morning. So they showed up in their swimming trunks and a swimsuit. Promptly, several of the members of this church kind of swarmed around them to help them to understand that what they had on was not appropriate in the house of the Lord. And that they should quickly change clothes and then come back to worship uh, in a kind of a very friendly, bite-your-head-off voice <laughs> that you guys are probably all familiar with. So, of course, they left, but they didn't go to change. They just left. And they didn't come back that Sunday or any Sunday after that because some of the people there made clothing choice, the gospel message on that day. And they chose to be the clothing police rather than sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. So I use that story as kind of an extreme example, but we all have something that we would rather make the gospel message. I mean, think of some examples. I'll just list some things, throw them out there. It could be as simple as something like foul language or tattoos. We'll have none of that in here. Or Others might like certain worship styles or certain preaching styles. Well, I won't be there if that's the way they're going to preach the word. Or it could be school choice or vaccines or not vaccines or grinding your own wheat versus buying store-bought bread or red carpet instead of blue carpet. Same churches split over less. It could be that you just want to judge anyone who's not like you and you yourself become the gospel message. Isn't that really what's going on? Notice I didn't come down on a particular side on those things, like tattoos and those sorts of things, because that's not the point. It would be so easy for us to make something like that the gospel. Why? Because those things are easy to follow. Those things are easy to follow, and if we pick something like that that's really easy to follow, guess who looks like a superstar? We do. So as long as we can manipulate the rules, as long as we can control who wins the game, and we can make it to where we always win, then we get to be God. And therein, once again, lies the sin problem that takes us all the way back to Genesis 3. We are desperate for God's throne. And so we will even take something like the free offer of the gospel and toss it in his face because it doesn't conform to our rules. Because it makes Jesus look like a superstar instead of us. So what's the admonition here, Christian? Drop your bid to become the rule maker. And embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which says, he followed the rules. So that you don't have to. 
Here's the catch. There is a catch. He gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. Not you, because the glory belongs to Christ and to Christ alone. If He saved you according to His righteousness, by His grace, grace, through a faith that He gave you, then He alone gets the glory. This was the rallying cry of the Reformation 500 years ago. And this is why we need another Reformation even today. Because our gospel has become a man-centered gospel. And our preaching has become therapeutic. Easing the, pain, easing the pain of sin by convincing us that deep down we're actually really good. And that we have to just keep trying harder to reach our potential. Well, that's a road paved with gold and diamonds and statues of ourselves on every single corner. And the end of it is the pits of hell. We need Jesus. We need his goodness. We need his righteousness. And that doesn't mean that we go on sinning. Just as Jesus admonishes this man here, sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen to you. We should seek to live lives without sin so that the Father can be glorified, so that we can give glory to him. It's not about us. Thankfully, the rule book has been made such that we can't really do that this side of heaven so that guess who always gets the glory? Our Lord Jesus. We have to remember the first part of his admonition to this man. Don't forget. We want to look at the sin no more so that where nothing worse happens to you because oh if I can sin no more then I get to be I get to be the superstar. But we forget the part that says, See, you are well. Who made us well? Jesus. Our works don't make us more well. We don't get to be more well than we are. This man wasn't going to walk any better than he did. Jesus gave him perfect legs. But they they do bring our king glory, our good works do. And we and that should be our ultimate goal, goal is to bring him glory. So next let's look at Jesus's focus on redemption rather than condemnation. So this man was changed in that now he's walking, but I'm not convinced from the text that he is changed by the work that Jesus did in his life. Because he goes away, and what does he immediately do? He tells the Jewish leaders who it was that healed him, who was looking for him. It could be that there was a real change in his life, and that he was being coerced into revealing Jesus' identity, we just don't really have enough information here to say for sure, but it seems to me the plain reading that this man is out to get Jesus even after he was healed for whatever reason. But we know the, we, the reason that the Jewish leaders are out to get him. And it's, and it's way later in the book, and, or it's this way later in the book, and it's through reading the other Gospels. Why are they out to get him? Well, they believe Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. When in fact, Jesus is the one that first rested on the seventh day after he created the heavens and the earth. So how could they call him a Sabbath worker? He is the one who instituted the Sabbath. He's free to perform works of mercy and healing like you see here. 
like you see in other parts of the New Testament, anytime he pleases, because he's the God of the universe. And he says it this way, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, if the Sabbath was somehow only an Old Testament ordinance, this would be a perfect place for Jesus to set us straight and to help us understand that the Sabbath was for the Old Testament and no longer for the New Testament. But he doesn't do that. He does the opposite, really. He claims that his work is a divine work, like that of the Father. Therefore, his own work and the work of this man carrying his mat were both excused because they were the works of redemption, divine works of mercy in which the Lord gets all the glory. Pastors pastors do work on the Sabbath, but it's the work of the Lord. Doctors and nurses, other Others do works of mercy on the Sabbath. It's excused because the Lord shows us here that this type of work is the work of the Lord. It's not our own pleasure, as the Confession of Faith mentioned, but it's works of healing and mercy. So Jesus is working, doing work here that he was sent to do. Remember, we've read this several times. To set free the captive, to bring sight to the blind, to make the lame to walk. This is a divine imperative that brings the Father glory because it sets his redemptive acts in motion. Seeing the reverse of the curse so that it may be removed so that his people might be saved. And the text goes further to make sure that we understand. It's not just because he's a Sabbath breaker, but it was because he equated himself with God calling God his Father. The redemptive acts that the Father sent the Son to do were acts that could only be attributed to the Messiah, the Deliverer, God himself, who would come and deliver his people from their sins. If these acts acts that are so offensive... It's these acts that he's doing that are so offensive to the Jewish leaders. Why? Because they point to the one true God. They take the the glory off of themselves and they point to Jesus Christ. Again, man desires above all else power which God has and the throne that he sits on. Man desires power and glory. So for Jesus to testify that he is God was to leech power and glory away from these men who would save themselves because of their own made-up rules. Because if Jesus follows the rules freely, or he follows the rules and he freely offers us his righteousness, that's an offense to the one who wants to save himself with his own righteousness. Turn to 1 Corinthians with me, chapter 1. And it really brings out this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Remember this idea that it's an offense that someone else would save us by their works. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
but to us who are saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, Brothers and sisters, it's this folly that we preach because we believe. He made us to believe. And now we preach this same gospel. It alone is the power of salvation for those who are perishing. It is the power of salvation to the layman by the pool, just as it is to the Jewish leader who thinks he can save himself. It is the power of salvation to the one who has a hundred fingers pointed at him, just as it is to the one who is doing all the finger pointing. Just because we are believers now, doesn't mean that we need to start earning our salvation. Just as, it mean, just as it doesn't mean that anyone else who doesn't know Jesus needs to earn their salvation. The same gospel that we cherish will save the worst sinner, whether they look like a sinner or not. There are two types of people. There are saints in Christ who know their sin, and there are sinners who think that they're saints. We preach Christ to everyone because he alone is the power of salvation. All of us need it. So Christians, cast off anything that would cause you to believe that you can somehow do this on your own. For these Jewish leaders, in this text it was the Sabbath. For you, it's something different. But we all have that something that would cause us to believe that we are the God of our own universe. So cast that away. Cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cast off your own righteousness because you have the righteousness of Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Jesus, as we come to you, we recognize that we are idolaters and we are recovering from that on our best days. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to cast off the idols of the flesh, our own our own desire for deity, for your throne, and to cling to you alone and to your righteousness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.